From 2002 to 2008, World Wrestling Entertainment produced the Ruthless Aggression Era. Ruthless Aggression! As a power vacuum formed in the wake of wrestling's biggest boom period, WWE producers and superstars alike worked to reinvigorate their company and recapture success and acclaim. In the process, a string of future Hall of Fame level talent rose to the top and enjoyed crossover appeal in the public consciousness. We're going to take a trip back in time and travel through this amazing period in WWE history. The matches, the storylines, the home media and more. Every triumph and every heartbreak. Whether you were watching as it all unfolded, or you're here to learn about this era for the first time, this series will have something for you. This is Ruthless Aggression Relived. Ruthless Aggression! Hello and welcome to Ruthless Aggression Relived. I'm LT Fletcher, thanking you for inviting me into your podcast device. And over the course of this series, I'll be your tour guide to what I believe is one of the greatest periods in sports entertainment history. Certainly one of the greatest periods in WWE history. Now I know a new podcast is often a daunting prospect. There are new voices and personalities to get used to, and you want to know you're being spoken to by someone who won't insult your intelligence, and who treats the subject matter with the appropriate level of respect. And that's why today, in this introductory preview, I want to let you guys get to know a little bit about me and part of my story as a wrestling fan, as well as giving a look at all the necessary context and build-up that'll lead us to the 18th of March 2002. Even if you've never seen a wrestling show before now, by the time you reach the end of this episode, you'll hopefully be on an equal footing with us superfans who were there at the time. We'll be looking at what defined the Ruthless Aggression Era, who the initial champions of the time frame were and what their belts really represented, and we'll be taking a glance at some of the challenges that lay ahead for the World Wrestling Federation, as it was, 20 years ago. And when all's said and done, I want to tell you guys how you can get involved and be a part of the show, as well as giving you a sneak look forward at my first co-host joining me on episode one. Now, I've been a fan of professional wrestling since late 1997. It's something that I shared with my dad, the man who got me into wrestling. And we'd watch with delight as Stone Cold Steve Austin outmaneuvered the evil machinations of the corporation that wanted to see him fail. We'd laugh at the arrogant and brash rock as he verbally tore everyone down. We'd rally behind Mick Foley and his three distinct personalities. We'd speculate on where the storylines might lead. And we'd make one another laugh with a well-placed, It doesn't matter! And my dad and I loved the World Wrestling Federation. And we were watching during one of its hottest periods. My dad helped me not just understand wrestling, but appreciate it. See, unlike many young fans, I never had a moment of awakening when I realised wrestling was an artificial sport with predetermined winners and losers. To tell the truth, my dad told me as much during the first show I watched. It's all scripted, of course, he explained, but the skill and athleticism they must have to do what they do is amazing. I'm sure a lot of you are gasping at that revelation. I mean, you wouldn't tell a child that you-know-who isn't real, so why would you tell a child that wrestling isn't a legitimate contest? Well, the truth is, knowing the men and women I was watching were risking injury each week, purely in the name of entertainment, actually made me respect them even more. 
It probably informed the kind of wrestling matches I most enjoyed, too. As an adult, my favourite style of match is the technical style. When you get together two wrestlers who've honed their craft and can make every single move they do tell a story in the ring, that's the real magic of wrestling, because in that moment, even someone like me who's always known it isn't really real, gets caught up in the moment and forgets. So suffice to say, I've seen a lot in the world of pro wrestling. I lived through the Attitude Era and when wrestling was at its hottest. I thrilled to the invasion as I genuinely had a theory in my head that Team WWF might lose. No, really, it made sense. I was a child genius, I assure you. Now I've watched the company, now known as WWE, make some truly jaw-dropping decisions over the years. The truth of the matter is, I'm not so fond of the current product. Now, I'm not so blind to my own nostalgia to realise a large part of that is the fact I grew up with a particular era and things that I knew are scary and different. But I really do feel I lived through the most exciting time to be a WWE fan. And when I think back to those moments, I can't deny, nostalgia is a pretty addictive drug. But I want to share those feelings of happiness with you. I can't take you back in time, but with the help of my friends and co-hosts, I can do the next best thing. I can help you relive it, even if you weren't there. But before all that, a primer. Professional wrestling is an ever-continuing story. There really is no singular good jumping-on point, and as a result, there'll always be things newcomers may not be aware of, or that long-time fans may have forgotten. This introductory episode will give all the necessary context anyone could ask for before joining me and my co-hosts on this amazing journey into wrestling history. It doesn't matter if you're a seasoned WWE fan or a total newcomer to wrestling, with any luck you'll be able to get something out of this podcast episode by episode, whether it's a trip down memory lane or a history lesson. Wrestling fans often view periods of the history of larger, more successful wrestling promotions by eras. In most cases, these will be defined by who the promoter, booker or head writer was at the time, as these are the men and women responsible for the direction of the company. A new person at the top of the mountain brings new ideas and ways of doing business, shifting the direction of the company. The company we know today as WWE doesn't have that. In the modern age of professional wrestling, the company has only ever had one person at the top of the ladder, Vince McMahon. As a result, the WWE's ears are instead defined by the company's creative direction. McMahon's first true era is known as the Golden Era. It's also known as the Hulkamania Era after its top star, Hulk Hogan. This period, spanning roughly 1982 to 1993, probably represents Vince McMahon's purest concept of what he believed professional wrestling should be. The characters are bold and brash, the heroes and villains are clearly defined, and the top star of the age is a superhero who fights for the values of Americana and in the name of his young fans. This was the period that put the then World Wrestling Federation on the map. Hogan was an enormously popular star and remains arguably the most famous wrestler of all time. The in-ring action was rarely exciting by today's standards, but the clearly lineated good guys and bad guys made for stories that are usually easy enough to follow for even a casual fan. And sometimes, if you were very lucky, you might just get an all-time great piece of wrestling storytelling, such as the alliance, rivalry, breakup, and enmity of the Mega Powers tag team. If you're at all interested in the WWF's first great boom period, I can heartily recommend Old School Wrestling Review, OSW for short. They've covered every single supercard from this period in great and comedic detail. 
Following this, the WWF saw a change in fortunes. A steroid scandal swept the company, and Vince McMahon avoided prison by the narrowest of margins for his alleged involvement in the case. As a result, the larger-than-life physiques that had so permeated the golden era had to be quietly shuffled into the background. Losing top wrestling stars Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage also left a huge gap at the top of the table. As a result, in 1993, WWF ushered in its next era, the New Generation. The talents of this era would generally be younger than that of the previous one. In the place of mountains of muscle like Hogan, the new generation was defined by the likes of the tall but believably built Diesel, and most crucially, the significantly smaller in stature and build, hitman Bret Hart and the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels. While these men and a slew of others proved their worth as a result of their in-ring prowess, the new generation era was a difficult time for the WWF financially and creatively. Many of the company's mid- and lower-card talent failed to connect with the fans in the way the stars of the previous generation had been able to do so. As the WWF struggled, the threat of Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling loomed large, with WCW delivering a more pure wrestling show as opposed to WWF's cartoonish product. Now, the new generation comes up in discussion on a lot of wrestling podcasts, but one which delves deep into its waters is the new generation project, if you're at all interested in the concept of a wrestling company seemingly doing its best to suffocate itself. The answer to the WWF's problems came in 1997. WCW was kicking the tar out of the WWF creatively and in the television ratings. Its New World Order storyline, which debuted in 1996, had proved compelling, and viewers appreciated a product that didn't insult their intelligence. To combat this, WWF owner Vince McMahon and head writer Vince Russo ushered in the Attitude Era. The Attitude Era, as with the Golden Era before it, perfectly captured the cultural zeitgeist of its time period, in this instance, the late 1990s. Gone were the heroic characters of yesteryear, in their place were morally grey anti-heroes, including the biggest star in the history of the business, Stone Cold Steve Austin, a beer-swigging, middle-finger-raising, ass-kicking brawler who became beloved by the fans for his no-nonsense attitude, but who won out against all odds because he was always able to outsmart McMahon's conniving, on-screen, evil boss persona, Mr. McMahon. Characters like The Rock, Mankind, Triple H, D-Generation X, and Chris Jericho all rose to stardom in this period, down to their connection with the fans and the fact they stood out from any of the icons of the WWF's past. In the latter half of the Attitude Era, new head writer Chris Kresge and his approach to long-term storytelling saw The Rock become the company's top star, as Austin battled a neck injury. By the end of the Attitude Era, Austin and The Rock had managed to do the unthinkable. Both had become megastars of equal stature, the twin pillars of the wrestling industry's most profitable era. For an in-depth look at the Attitude Era and its lasting impact on wrestling, I truly recommend the Attitude Era podcast for their in-depth coverage of the period. It's also very funny. So all this brings us to the night of WrestleMania 17, the greatest and most successful show in WWF history up to that point. Earlier that week, Vince McMahon had publicly finalised the purchase of WCW, his rivals having been driven out of business by the fortunes of the WWF and purchased for a pittance that McMahon would make back hundreds of times over. Not long after, the WWF would also buy out popular and influential promotion Extreme Championship Wrestling, ECW. Effectively, the WWF was the only game in town. So, with no competition, and with their greatest show in the history books, one question remained. Now what?
Well, to be fair, that question actually encompassed a few sub-questions of its own. With all the talent coming in from WCW and ECW, what would the WWF do about its roster now bloated practically overnight? How would the WWF win over the die-hard WCW and ECW fans? And how would they keep things fresh and exciting for WWF fans? Well, as the Attitude Era concluded at WrestleMania 17, so too ended the Monday Night Wars, the ratings battle between WWF and WCW. As a result, the WWF entered what in hindsight is known as the post-war period, effectively a year-long epilogue to the Attitude Era. This storyline stretched from WrestleMania 17 until November of 2001 and saw a number of former WCW and ECW talent form an alliance intent on destroying the WWF from within, wishing to seize control from Vince McMahon and hand it over, in storyline of course, to his children, Shane and Stephanie, who were inexplicably placed in charge of the alliance on screen when ECW owner Paul Heyman was on payroll at the time. He was made into very much a third banana cheerleader for the group, by the way. The Invasion is a polarising storyline, to say the least. Some fans enjoyed it. Others hated it. What is inarguable, however, is the validity of the two biggest criticisms of the storyline. For one thing, the supposed WCW-ECW alliance relied rather too heavily on WWF talent, including many that had never worked for either WCW or ECW, with the split becoming not about which company performers worked for, but which characters were the good guys, Team WWF, and which were the villains, Team Alliance. Because, of course, in the storyline, the WWF were the unequivocal heroes, and anyone who associated with WCW or ECW was automatically evil. There was basically no room for nuance whatsoever in the story. If you sided with Vince, who was best known for portraying an evil boss on TV, then you were a good guy. If you sided with his children, who were also known for portraying villains, then that made you a bad guy. Ultimately, the biggest stars of the Alliance were Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kurt Angle, the latter being a WWF homegrown talent, and the former being the biggest WWF star in history. The WCW and ECW talent were, with perhaps the exception of Rob Van Dam and Booker T, never presented as a threat to the top-level WWF talent. Unless, of course, they were already better known for their WWF run. The other major criticism of the invasion is its lack of any real dream matches or star power on the Alliance side. While Booker T and Rob Van Dam quickly presented themselves as major players and were usually written as such in storylines, most of the Alliance's non-WWF talent were less impressively written, or were talent that had performed lower down the match card in their former home. Stars like Sting, Ric Flair, Diamond Dallas Page, Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall and Goldberg, the real cream of the WCW crop, represented the true WWF-WCW dream matches, and Page was the only one of them who took part in the invasion. In reality, the rest of these talents were all locked into big money contracts with Turner, WCW's former owners, and now a few options presented themselves. Option one was the WWF could buy out these contracts in full, and for whatever reason, the company elected not to do this. Instead, they went with option two, which was to ask these talent if they'd scrap their Turner contract to come and work for less money in the WWF. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone offered me a contract that would pay me less money for more work, I suspect I'd do what the top WCW talent did, and sit at home and collect my money. Now, 
Not to get ahead of ourselves, but eventually every name I just listed, bar Sting, would appear for the WWF within the next two years. Unfortunately, most of the Dream Match money pitted those talents against The Rock or Stone Cold Steve Austin, the two megastar wrestlers that would bow out early into the Ruthless Aggression era. Hindsight being 2020, had the WWF known The Rock and Austin were on their way out, they would have almost certainly bought out the Turner contracts and run Dream Matches for a year to make back any money lost hand over fist. But they were the only game in town now, and they thought they could wait. Surely, The Rock and Austin would still be around on the other side of those Turner contracts expiring. Right? The invasion concluded at WWF's Survivor Series pay-per-view on November 18th, 2001, resulting in all of the active WCW championships except the world title being merged with appropriate matching WWF titles, and the alliance officially being brought into the WWF fold. The following month at WWF's Vengeance Supercard, the WCW Championship was also merged with its WWF counterpart, as a three-match tournament saw Chris Jericho defeat The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin in the same night to become the sole champion. With WWF being the only global-level promotion left, Jericho had become the first undisputed world champion professional wrestling had seen in almost a century. Meanwhile, elsewhere on the card, Vince McMahon's storyline after the invasion saw former WCW world champion Ric Flair purchase Shane and Stephanie's stock in the WWF, making him and Vince co-owners of the company. Now, in real life, McMahon and Flair are friends. But on screen, their rivalry reached a boiling point, and at January's Royal Rumble event, the two fought one another in a street fight, with Flair coming out on top. This led to McMahon's character going off the deep end. If he couldn't control the entirety of the WWF, he'd kill it to make sure nobody else could have it. Therefore, at February's No Way Out Supercard, McMahon reintroduced the greatest villainous faction in WCW history to the WWF, as Hulk Hogan, Scott Hall, and Kevin Nash, better known as the New World Order, were brought on board to inject a lethal dose of poison into the company Vince had created. And by wonderful coincidence, as highlighted by the DVD releases cover, the already established No Way Out event shared its initials with the New World Order, the NWO. As the NWO ran roughshod over the WWF and collided with the Rock and Stone Cold, former WWF champion Triple H made his return from injury at the Royal Rumble, winning the Royal Rumble match itself to earn a shot at the undisputed championship in the main event of WrestleMania 18, all the while having to contend with a divorce from his wife Stephanie McMahon. In storyline, that is, the two weren't yet actually married in real life. Meanwhile, Ric Flair made clear his feelings on the callous actions of The Undertaker, who responded by entering into a vicious blood feud with Flair. The two would collide in a no-disqualification match at WrestleMania 18. WrestleMania 18 itself took place on March 17, 2002. The event saw The Undertaker and Flair brutalise one another in a bloody encounter, with Undertaker picking up the win to extend his WrestleMania undefeated streak to 10-0. Stone Cold Steve Austin earned a measure of revenge on Scott Hall and Kevin Nash by defeating Hall in singles competition. Triple H completed a successful return to the ring when he defeated Chris Jericho to become the undisputed world champion. But the true main event of the evening was a match billed as Icon vs Icon, pitting The Rock against Hulk Hogan. 
Hogan was the biggest star the WWF had known in the 1980s and early 1990s, with The Rock being one of two men to hold that honour in equal regard, the other being Austin, in the late 1990s and early 2000s. This was truly one of the biggest possible dream matches in wrestling history, if not the biggest. The Rock won the match, but that was only half the story. Despite Hogan being a heel, a bad guy, and The Rock being a babyface, a good guy, the Toronto crowd at WrestleMania were delighted to welcome Hogan back into the WWF fold. The crowd reactions for the match were effectively reversed, with the fans cheering Hogan and booing The Rock. The reactions were far too great for the WWF to ignore, forcing them to make immediate plans for a change in direction for Hogan. And that's really where the Attitude Era's epilogue leaves us. Though it wasn't planned at the time, the following night's edition of Raw would, in hindsight, begin the as-yet-undefined Ruthless Aggression Era, with a number of new storylines building and shocking developments providing the now-traditional post-WrestleMania start point for newcomers. The Ruthless Aggression Era was defined by three key factors. The first factor is what most keenly separates it from its forebear, the weighting of the scale of storyline versus in-ring action. Now, the Attitude Era had become popular thanks to what some have referred to as Crash TV. Things, often shocking in nature, happened at such blistering speed you couldn't help but look. Now, Crash TV was exciting, but the pace of the action meant the actual in-ring content of the WWF product often suffered as a result. The WWF promoted a product where even its lowliest performers could garner huge crowd reactions as every character on the show had something to do. But because there were so many characters, not all of them got very much time to actually wrestle. Matches were often only a few minutes in length, and generally speaking, only championship title holders or main event performers received any kind of notable TV time. The Attitude Era was often incredibly entertaining, but outside of the main event stars such as The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Triple H, The Undertaker, and Mick Foley, it was rare to see any kind of gravitas in the matches themselves and the weekly TV broadcasts. This changed in the Ruthless Aggression era. Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho were just three of the performers who debuted for the WWF during the Attitude Era that made people pay attention not just to their characters, but to the actual quality of their matches. Suddenly, people were keen to see what the technical style wrestlers would do to tell a story in the ring, rather than just what flashy event would unfold next in the storylines, and a technical style would become treated with the legitimacy it deserved as a number of performers during the Ruthless Aggression era favoured it. The second era-defining factor was the hunt for new main event caliber wrestling superstars. Very early on, it became readily apparent that The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin would not factor heavily into the Ruthless Aggression era. The Rock was enjoying the beginning of what would become one of the greatest film careers in Hollywood history, and Austin was suffering from burnout and nagging injuries. The industry would need to move past these two all-time greats if it was to survive. The Ruthless Aggression Era not only built on some of the Monday Night Wars great performers, creating megastars from the likes of Kurt Angle, Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio, but it created a slew of new superstars, including four industry-defining megastars with mainstream crossover appeal, one of whom becoming the face of the industry in the process. The third defining factor behind this era was the need to win over, and in many cases win back, viewers. When the Monday Night Wars ended, many fans of WCW simply switched off. Some never returned. When the Attitude Era bled into the post-war period, including the Invasion storyline, more fans left as well, feeling the WWF product had lost some of what had made it special. 
As the new millennium began to unfold, it was clear that a lot of the envelope pushing that WWF had utilised since the late 1990s simply wasn't going to be acceptable anymore. However, that didn't stop them from trying. Sometimes, the company tried to recapture that edge that had led them to victory over WCW, and misfired completely. Learning from these mistakes and misfires, and more importantly learning to walk again and stop leaning on past successes, was a crucial part of what eventually shaped the ruthless aggression era into something truly special. Additionally, the Attitude Era had upended what most fans thought they knew about character alignments. Heels were often the coolest characters on the show. Babyfaces were sometimes among the least interesting because they lacked the edge. At the end of the day, fans were now less interested in if a character's moral compass pointed straight as an arrow than they were in whether the character was cool. Unfortunately, a lot of those cool characters weren't going to fly in the new millennium, so workarounds often had to be found, and sometimes WWE would misunderstand what the fans found cool about them in the first place. Let's have a look then at one of the company's first big challenges at the start of this period. Specifically, how they would book their champions, and how their championship titles could be legitimised or delegitimised by their respective holders. More precisely, let's look at the championship picture at this point, which looked as follows. The WWF European Championship was, at this time, generally held by talent on the lower end of the match card, to give the lesser superstars a unifying purpose and something to fight over. Former WCW star Diamond Dallas Page entered and left WrestleMania 18 as champion, frustrating challenger Christian in the process. The WWF Intercontinental Championship is one of the most prestigious championships in company history. A number of wrestlers that have held this title have gone on to become major main event stars for the company, meaning it's often seen as a stepping stone to the main event. Former ECW mainstay Rob Van Dam challenged William Regal for the championship at WrestleMania 18, winning the title. The WWF Hardcore Championship is something of an anomaly at this stage, and effectively a relic of the Attitude Era. Originally introduced as a joke in storyline, and represented by a smashed WWF championship held together with tape, it was generally contested in hardcore matches, which allowed the use of weapons and generally suspended disqualifications. The title was, at this point, also defended under what was known as the 24-7 rule, which meant it was always up for grabs, no matter where the title holder was, as long as a wrestler could pin the champion and get a nearby referee to make the three count. This meant wrestlers could swipe the title from the champion whilst they were defending it in a scheduled match against another performer. The Hardcore Championship, and particularly the 24-7 rule, were used to give fans in attendance at live, non-televised events a title change, which could then credibly be undone by the end of the night to allow continuity on television. The downside was, the more times the belt changed hands, the less value it had. By the end of WrestleMania 18, the belt had been around for around three and a half years, and was in its 98th championship reign, which should give you some idea of how seriously the belt was being taken at this point. Additionally, matches with a reliance on weapons were often frowned upon as garbage wrestling by purists both inside the industry and watching as fans. Maven would be the champion entering WrestleMania, and he'd lose the title during his scheduled defense of it. The belt changed hands several times throughout the night in a sequence of comedic skits, before ending up back around Maven's waist at the end of the evening. 
The WWF Cruiserweight Championship was formed from the merger of the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship and the WCW Cruiserweight Championship, mainly inheriting the title history from the WWF lineage, though also sometimes recognising some of WCW's earliest Cruiserweight Champions where there was no clash between lineages. In the land of the big men, giving the smaller wrestlers a championship to compete for allowed them to stand out better against a sea of tall, muscle-bound bodybuilders. The WWF Cruiserweight Championship had an upper weight limit of 225 pounds. Tajiri, previously best known to American audiences for his stint in ECW, had won the championship back on October 22, 2001 on an episode of Raw, but was not afforded a match at any pay-per-view since that point right up to and including WrestleMania to defend his title. The WWF's poor treatment of smaller wrestlers was something the Ruthless Aggression Era would go some way towards fixing. The WWF Women's Championship was the most prestigious championship the industry could offer to women at the time. Women's wrestling in the WWF had not historically been treated with the same reverence as the men, and in truth, it would still be a very long time before there was true parity. And some would argue, there still isn't. The later part of the Attitude Era, and the early part of the Ruthless Aggression Era, would go some way towards legitimising women's wrestling in the company, with a solid mix of women that would traditionally be seen as eye candy being used mainly in storyline roles, with the more skilled performers controlling most of the action in the ring. Having made her company debut at the 2001 Survivor Series event, former ECW wrestler Jazz entered WrestleMania 18 as women's champion and left as the same, in the process fending off both Trish Stratus and Lita, the WWF's two most iconic female performers, perhaps of all time. The WWF Tag Team Championship was, naturally, the top honour available to teams of two in the WWF. Tag team matches traditionally see two members of a team quite literally tag in and out of a match to try and defeat an opposing team, though match variants with both members of a team in the ring at the same time are often known as tornado tag matches. The Attitude Era had seen an incredible rise of innovative tag team matches and an influx of tag team specialists, including the Hardy Boys, the Dudley Boys, Edge and Christian, the APA, and Too Cool. And the Ruthless Aggression Era would continue this trend with a number of great tag teams. In an elimination match at WrestleMania 18, the team of Billy and Chuck successfully defended their title against the Dudleys, the Hardys, and the APA. Lastly... The WWF World Championship, at this time also variously known as simply the WWF Championship and by the undisputed name, was, and is, the most prestigious prize in all of professional wrestling. Only the performers the company has the most faith in hold the belt, with some being among the biggest names in sports entertainment history. The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Ultimate Warrior... Bruno Sammartino, Ric Flair, The Undertaker, Yoko Zuna. I could go on. The list reads like a who's who of professional wrestling legends and is one of the greatest goals in the industry. As previously noted, Triple H defeated Chris Jericho to claim the WWF Championship in the main event of WrestleMania 18. And all of this is well and good, with plenty of tremendous action from the WWF superstars in the pursuit of championship glory. However, with the acquisition of so many WCW and ECW talent, the WWF roster had become unmanageably large. 
the company had two major television shows a week, Raw and SmackDown, and both shows were expected to build the same storylines towards the same pay-per-view events as one another, meaning a tremendous number of talent were not given airtime to perform in front of television audiences. To better manage this huge roster of talent, while not detracting from the already established main eventers that made the most money for the company, a plan had to be thought up pretty sharpish. And this would prove to be the first major hurdle for the WWF in the incoming era. Fortunately, the writers and producers had a plan in place. Over the course of this podcast, we're going to be going in-depth on the six years of the Ruthless Aggression era, 2002 to 2008, starting the night after WrestleMania 18. Traditionally, wrestling podcasts tend to focus solely on the major events, the pay-per-view supercards. But you aren't truly reliving the era if you only have one show a month to watch. We're going to cover not just every pay-per-view in the period, but pivotal episodes of Raw and SmackDown. We'll be looking at every storyline, every character development, every rising superstar. We'll be looking through the WWE magazines, playing the WWE video games, watching the WWE documentaries. We're going to cover this period in wrestling history as if we're living through it for the first time, but with one eye to the future of the company and a look ahead to how the performers that rose to prominence in this period changed the face of the industry forever, as the World Wrestling Federation became World Wrestling Entertainment. 2022 marks the 20th anniversary of the Ruthless Aggression Era. This podcast hopes to serve as an ongoing 20th anniversary celebration of a period WWE have had difficulty commemorating owing to factors often beyond their control. Podcast episodes covering WWE's TV and pay-per-view output will see me joined by a rotating cast of special guest co-hosts. Whenever a WWE video game pops up on the timeline, we'll be streaming it live on Twitch and then hosting it in perpetuity on YouTube. And as for the rest, the books, magazines, DVD documentaries, and other lesser content perhaps, we'll be looking at hosting those as bonus episodes for our upcoming Patreon. We'll be looking at the monthly WWE magazines quite regularly, and plans are already underway for coverage of Tough Enough Season 2, as that reality show straddles the line between the Attitude Era and the Ruthless Aggression Era. But this isn't just a podcast I want you to listen to. It's something I want you to experience. This isn't going to be just another wrestling podcast where we give the matches star ratings or put all our stock in what the wrestling dirt sheet writers thought at the time or think today. No, no. We'll be reliving an entire period in wrestling history and I want it to be a grand shared experience where we both enjoy old memories and make new ones together. I encourage you to check out the appropriate subject matter before downloading each new podcast. Most television episodes and pay-per-views are available via the WWE Network. Or, in some cases, if they're not, well, they might be hosted elsewhere, if you know how to point Google in the right direction, let's say. I'll be wanting your opinions on a variety of topics, and we'll make your fan mail part of the show. If a television episode or pay-per-view was your first introduction to wrestling, or to the company we now know as WWE, let me know in advance with an anecdote about what got you hooked, and I might just stitch it into the podcast. To that end, for our first episode proper, I want you guys to fill up the mailbag with your thoughts and opinions on any and all of the following subjects. The state of the WWF at WrestleMania 18. How you felt about being a fan at this time. Whether your confidence in the company or the industry was the same or different to how it was a year previously. And your initial impressions on the debut of Brock Lesnar and of the first ever WWE draft and the ensuing brand extension. 
To get in touch with the show and leave your memories, feedbacks, thoughts, feelings, and anything else, you can contact the show at RARelived on Twitter or via email at ltruthlessaggression at gmail.com. All one word, of course. And you can find me on Twitter at LTDangerous. Those handles again, Twitter, RARelived, or LTDangerous on my personal account, and the email, ltruthlessaggression at gmail.com. We'll be jumping in with our first episode proper on March 18th, 2022, as we begin with a look at the opening scenes of the Ruthless Aggression era, and the first appearance of the next big thing, as we celebrate the 20th anniversary of Brock Lesnar exploding onto the scene. I'll be joined by my longtime friend and New Legacy Inc. comrade, John Blood, for a look at what may be the first Raw after WrestleMania by modern standards. Take the next few weeks to get yourself reacquainted with the Ruthless Aggression Era, or acquainted with it for the first time. You can find the March 18th, 2002 episode of Raw on the WWE Network if you haven't already checked it out. I'm looking forward to reliving all these classic moments with each and every one of you and getting your thoughts on the iconic arrival of Brock Lesnar. Once again, Twitter, RARelived, or LTDangerous, and email, LTRuthlessAggression at gmail.com. Until next time, I've been LT Fletcher, thanking you for joining me, and I'll be back here on March 18th with Johnny, and we both hope to see you then as we embark on this great journey.